0: Good morning, dear people of God here at Christ Church, and those of you who may be viewing online, we welcome you to our worship. Uh, I must confess that one of the great things about preaching in the first service is that none of your mistakes or blunders or embarrassing moments are permanently captured. And I like that. (laughs) In the second service, you are utterly exposed. (laughs) Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the 88th Psalm. The 88th Psalm. It's been a rather interesting week. It's one of those weeks that does not go as planned. Pastor Mir was scheduled to be here this morning, and he fell sick. And so that's why uh, we're here in his place Let's also be praying for Pastor Greco as he's away, that he and Deb would thoroughly enjoy their vacation. Now then, let's turn our attention to God's Word, Psalm the eighty-eighth, and let's read the entirety of the psalm. Hear the word of the true and living God. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless." Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers And the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you be so kind as to pray with me and for me as I would lead us to the throne of grace audibly? Let us pray. O Holy Father, we bow in your presence this day, conscious, O God, of the reality that without you we can do nothing. And Father, we feel our own weakness, and we feel, Father, the failings of our own inadequacies. And so we cry out to you that you would be pleased to neutralize all of that through the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would be pleased to send him to take this, your word, and to apply it to all of our hearts with power and authority from above. To the end, that we might become more conformed to the image of your Son, whose glory we desire to promote, for we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1552, there were five young Protestants, Protestant students who had been studying in Zurich, Switzerland, who made their way home to the city of Lyon in France. And they had come to the evangelical faith, as it was called then in the days of the Reformation. They had been converted to Christ, and they had been preparing themselves for the ministry of the gospel. And en route back to Lyon, they had paused in the city of Geneva, and by all accounts, they had opportunity to converse with no one less than John Calvin. And from there, they continued on to Lyon. But no sooner had they arrived there than they were arrested. They were tried for heresy and they were sentenced to death. Just beginning their ministry. And so they appealed to the authorities in Paris and the authorities there confirmed the sentence which had been passed upon them in the city of Lyon. And during their course of imprisonment there in Lyon, John Calvin wrote two or three letters to them and when their sentence is confirmed and they were anticipating the fires of martyrdom, John Calvin writes to them when all of the attempts to secure their release had failed. And Calvin writes to them and he says in his letter, God has stopped the way. God has stopped the way. What do you make of such words? And yet Calvin had to write those words to these five young Protestants. I think it was the eldest of the five when his friends were being stripped naked and chained to the stake to be burned for their faith. He prayed on his knees, and then he requested of the executioner, May I have one more wish? And the executioner said, What? He said, That I may kiss my brethren goodbye. And each of them followed his example, stretching their necks as best they were able, in order to give the parting kiss, as they said to one another, Adieu, adieu. May God keep you, my brother. May God keep you. God has stopped the way. When Martin Luther came to preach on the 45th chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah in verse 15, which reads, Truly, You are a God who hides yourself. He titled his comments after the early church commentator and translator of the Latin Vulgate, Jerome. And Jerome wrote in those words where it said, truly you're a God who hides yourself. Jerome wrote, Deus absconditus. God has fled the scene. God has ascended, or so it seemed. Now you may recall that Isaiah, when he is writing in those chapters there in his prophecy, he is speaking prophetically about the Babylonians who, only 130 or 140 years or so from that time, would come and decim- devastate the covenant people of God as well as desecrate their temple. And their land. And as Isaiah is there befuddled and confounded at God's ways, he he cannot begin to begin to take in this prophetic vision that God has given him of his ways, and it moves him to exclaim, Truly, you are a God who hides yourself. No, it is with these words of Isaiah 45 and verse 15 that I desire to segue into these words of the 88th psalm. It's a remarkable psalm. It is a lament. Indeed, approximately 40% of the Psalter is composed of laments. This is a very exceptional proportion in the psalms, is it not? Why so many? This is the songbook. Of God's old covenant church and 40% of their songs are laments now why should it be I think it's because the life of faith is lived out in a fallen world in fallen bodies that continue to sin after all we're told That we live in a world where the evil one, the poneros, holds sway over the world. And so confesses the Apostle John in 1 John 5 and verse 19. There's a realism about the book of Psalms that helps us to navigate our way through life at times. Because life is hard. And it's often confusing and baffling. Sometimes I think that we think so ill of ourselves and we say why am I struggling why is it that my life is so hard and the answer is because it is life is hard now maybe for some of you life is very sweet if so pray tell me what in the world is your secret I, I would love to know what it is you know, the Lord Jesus looked at his disciples at one point in his ministry, and he said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And they were many of which we read in the days of his flesh. And here in this psalm, the 88th psalm, is a man who is in the very depths. There's no upbeat ending To this psalm, you'll notice, the ESV concludes, my companions have become darkness. Or perhaps a better translation at the end is, darkness is my only friend. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Now, we don't know the particulars of the context of this psalm. He is utterly in the depths. He's bewildered with God. You see, the psalmist here, he cannot square the fact that Yahweh, whom he addresses, O Lord, Yahweh, my covenant God, God of my salvation, he cannot square that with his experience. There seems to be a conflict here for him between theology and experience. There's no escape. Or so it seems to him. Every day he prays, verse 9 I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you, but nothing seems to change. Truly you're a God who hides yourself, Deus asconditus, you have fled the scene, you have asconded. Perhaps the proper question is in order as we. Think about a closer examination of this psalm. And that question would be this. Is this psalm a song of a depressed believer? Is that what it's all about? Possibly it is. Though personally, I don't think it is. I think it's surely possible for genuine believers to become depressed, sometimes for clinical reasons, sometimes for physical reasons, sometimes for spiritual reasons. Christians can get depressed. But as I read this song, and, and, and particularly as I read it and live with it, I think that this is a man who is discovering that faithfulness to God in a fallen world, is costly. And he's learning that lesson. Let's see if I can place it in the broader context, perhaps in terms of the Psalter. There's another lament that we find in the 44th Psalm, for example. And there the psalmist is once again bewildered with God and with his ways. And he says, but you have rejected us. You have disgraced us and have not gone out with us with with our armies. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter, he says. Life is unceasingly dark. And then he says, yet for your sake we're killed all the day long. Why do you hide your face? Now Paul picks up on those very words, you may recall, In the 8th chapter of his epistle to the Romans, for your sake, he says, we're killed all the day long. What is happening in the 44th Psalm is not that God has abandoned his people, but that the psalmist is discovering existentially, that is, in his own experience, the cost of faithfulness. For your sake, he says, for your sake. We're killed all the day long. What is happening to us is happening because we belong to you. I don't think this psalm is the psalm of a depressed believer, but rather of a suffering saint. It could be both. But he, had this, he was discovering that belonging to Yahweh in a world with a plethora of gods is increasingly more and more difficult. So how are we to make sense of this psalm? Why is it here in the Psalter? I want to notice, and before you fall over, some six things with you. Believe me, all of them are short, none of them are profound, and they're all very simple. Notice, first of all, that the psalmist prayed. In his darkness, he prayed. His darkness did not drive him from God. His darkness drove him to God. O God, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 9, every day I call upon you. O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. He prayed. He refused to permit his extremities his extreme circumstances, his dark and overwhelming circumstances to drive him from Yahweh, the God of his salvation. Was it not John Bunyan who wrote in his little prayer book, he said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Very simple observation, is it not? In his extremity, he cried out to the Lord. That, dear people, is a great thing. And it is one of the hallmarks, I think, of pristine, exquisite faith in a child of God. Boy or girl, man or woman, broken, bruised, battered, but praying. Secondly, and developing that, notice he prayed every day. Morning, noon, and night, we might say. I cry out day and night before you. Again, verse 9, every day I call upon. He will not let God go in his praying. His prayer is not that you'll notice simply of going through the motions. It's not offered in fits and starts. It's not occasional. It's rather like Jacob wrestling with God. I will not let you go until you bless. I've got nowhere else to go after all. It's as if he's saying, There is no other help or hope in this cosmos but you, O oh Lord. I will not let you go until you bless. Never give up praying, dear people, for yourself, for your family, for your friends. Keep at it. It's as if he's saying, This is a hallmark of faith, and it is. I wonder how seriously you and I take prayer as a hallmark of faith. You read, for example, through the Acts of the Apostles, and you come to the ninth chapter, and you read of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus there, that remarkable double event. And the Lord comes to Ananias in the vision, and he says to Ananias, I want you to go to a street called Straight. And there you're going to look for in the house of Judas and find a man of Tarsus, Saul by name. And you know the response of Ananias. He says, Lord, that man has done much evil to your saints at Jerusalem. And the Lord says to Ananias, behold, he is praying. He is praying. That was the identifying thing trait that would mark out Saul of Tarsus as a newborn child of God. Behold, he is praying. And here's the psalmist, in his extremity and in his darkness, he will not let God go. Then thirdly, he prays, you'll notice, as a man of faith. To be sure, his faith is tried, it's battered, it's bruised, it's beaten, but lo and behold, it's still functioning, isn't it? Look at how he begins. O Yahweh, O Lord, God of my salvation. I think it was Martin Luther who once remarked that the gospel was all about personal pronouns. We live in a world today where people hardly even know what a pronoun is anymore. But his faith is bruised, isn't it? It's beaten. It's battered. You can almost feel as you read this psalm, you sense and feel something of the texture of his brokenness and his bewilderment in this psalm. And yet his faith is still functioning oh lord god of my salvation as he uses the pronoun of possession and it's the opening words of the psalmist i think that breathe hope into everything else which follows in this psalm he can see no light darkness he says is my only friend but his opening words with which he commences this psalm are actually a signal to us that here is a man who believes God despite all of his circumstances to the contrary. And so he prays. He prays every day. He does, does so as a man of faith. But notice, fourthly, he prays also in the recognition that God is behind everything that is happening to him. Look at verses 6 through 8. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Here's a believer who understands that evil is not autonomous. That the Lord God Almighty, His Yahweh, His covenant King, the God of His salvation is not some helpless bystander or spectator upon His darkness, but that that He is the sovereign Lord who has mysteriously, though bewilderingly, working out his purposes, accomplishing his bright designs as William Cooper puts it in his hymn and works his sovereign will. It's a great thing to know in your trials that the devil is not autonomous, that he can do nothing beyond the gracious, wise, sovereign purpose and will of your heavenly father and the psalmist prays in the knowledge of that reality there's a mystery to this is there not a puzzling mystery how can God do this without becoming tainted with evil well from a human perspective we don't know but he can he uses sin sinlessly for his own glory and for our good, he's not the spectator who is working out plan B or plan C in our lives. He is relentlessly, purposefully, wisely, gloriously forwarding his great design. And what is his great design? What is God about in your life and in mine this morning that causes him to bring us at times into dark places and circumstances? You might respond and say, well, David, I know the great design of Christ. It's to save a people to the praise of his glory. Well, that's his proximate purpose, but it's not his ultimate purpose. The salvation of a lost world of sinners is not God's ultimate purpose. His grand design is the glory of his own beloved Son. Remember how Paul expresses it in Romans 8 and verse 29. For those God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That, here we have a clause of consequence, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, or brothers, And the mystery of it all is that in all the dark and confusing ways of the Lord that He uses with us and in our lives, He has this great design, the exaltation of His Son. We're to be conformed to His likeness that He might be the firstborn of many brethren. As Samuel Rutherford said, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. This is a man who recognizes that beyond, behind all that is happening to him, it is Yahweh, his covenant King, God of his salvation, who is in control. Then fifthly, we see moreover in this psalm that the life of faith, authentic faith, may be marked by unrelieved darkness. We remind you, Isaiah 50 and verse 10, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him rely or let him stay upon his God. There is only one man ever in this cosmos who had all the lights go out for him. And I'll come to that in a moment. But let him who walks in darkness and has no light. There's this reality you see in the Bible that the life of faith can experience unrelieved darkness, unrelieved anguish. And as an aside of that, I'd just like to add that this is why the church of Jesus Christ needs gentle pastors. It's because people, people are often broken in a multitude of different ways and few of those ways are visible. Most of them are subterranean. Most of them are below the surface that no one else can see. And we need pastors and elders who are gentle of heart and lowly of heart, who will not break bruised reeds, but who come alongside people, not commanding them what to do, mind you, but by drawing near to them, being afflicted in their afflictions and rejoicing in their rejoicings. At times, our cries from the depths of our own darkness can be uttered little more than... Those lines that are described, for instance, by Lord Alfred Tennyson in his poem, In Memoriam, where he writes, So runs my dream, but what am I? I'm an infant crying in the night. I'm an infant crying for the light, And with no language but a cry. Sometimes that is part and parcel of the reality of the life of a believer. You know, sometimes I think we ask all the wrong questions at the, at the uh, licensings and ordinations of ministers. But here's one for the record. Ask one this. Are you gentle and lowly of heart? And if you ask that of a candidate, hopefully he'll say, I'm the wrong person to ask. You need to ask For example, my wife, if I'm married, you need to put that question to her. Or you need to ask my children if I have children. Or you need to ask my friends whom I have worshipped alongside of for 20 or 30 years. Because the life of faith can at times barely place one foot in front of the other. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, man, David, all of this is downbeat. And maybe I'm simply reflecting something of my own understanding of the Christian life and part of my own experience. But I hope not because there are times of joy unspeakable and full of glory. But I remind you, 40% of the Psalms are laments. And then in the sixth place, you'll notice... Not only that he prayed, he prayed every day, he prayed as a man of faith. His faith was functioning, bruised, broken, battered, bewildered, but still functioning. He recognizes that God is behind all that is touching and troubling his life. We've seen that the life of faith can be marked by unrelieved darkness. But finally, and I think more importantly, because you must do this, you have to read the Bible in the full trajectory of its redemptive unfolding. We have, you and I, a companion who more, far more than any man, experienced unrelieved darkness. We have a companion who knows all about darkness. Eloi, Eloi, lama my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now his darkness, mind you, was unique. His was redemptive. Ours is not redemptive. Ours is sanctifying to be sure, but it's not redemptive. But the Lord Jesus Christ was the prototypical man of faith. And he entered into darkness. It engulfed his soul. There was no way he could possibly prepare for it. And that's why in the garden, an angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. Because in his holy humanity, he needed help in his own darkness he knows all about darkness come to me he says But you say the Lord Jesus Christ is now enthroned in glory he's glorified dust still and the marks he bears as a lamb as if it had been slain the marks that he bears in his glorified dust tells us that he knows all about darkness and thus the writer to the hebrews exhorts us let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need he knows darkness the lord jesus knows darkness that none of us can begin to begin to imagine And that is the great thing about the gospel, dear people, because it is very honest with us. And anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, says Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. Now don't misunderstand me this morning, I am not saying that the life of faith is always downbeat and dark and dismal, far be it. But if you lose the realism of the Psalter, you lose a vital reality of Christianity. And the Psalter expresses that. Now, we like happy endings, do we not? But there is no upbeat ending to this psalm. Darkness, he concludes, is my only friend. But it is part of the reality of the Christian life. Now, maybe the next day the Lord came to his servant, the psalmist, tenderly, softly, and reminded him that he was his God and radiated his soul with the touch of heaven. We don't know, but this psalm is here to read with the other psalms, like the 23rd psalm. It's a snapshot. It's one of 150. Indeed, it's not the whole story, but it is part of the real story. And that's why the opening words of the psalm are so important. O Lord God of my salvation, he knew who he was. He knew to whom he belonged. And that kept him functioning. I remember some years back, I was reading Calvin's Institutes and it struck me because he was addressing the topic of discipleship. And with this, I close. He even cites the early church writer Augustine to this effect. And he said, it is better to limp on the path that leads to life than to run outside it. Dear people, all of us are limping our way to heaven. Some of us, I think, more obviously than others, but all of us are limping. Some of us hide our limps better than others but all of us are limping. But praise be to God, one day we'll limp no more. And every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Let's pray.